Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 254 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a landscape photographer living near the Sonoran Desert of Arizona, Peter Koskin. Peter and I have been online acquaintances for many years and have several mutual friends. I've long appreciated his photography, and I've found that our personal styles have evolved similarly throughout the years. We had a great chat on this week's podcast, and I'm confident that you'll enjoy it. Over on Patreon this week, Peter and I discussed the evolution of his post-processing style over the years, what has been behind that shift, and how he has thought about his how he edits his work. To listen to this bonus episode and almost 200 others, simply support the podcast on Patreon for as little as $5 per month. It really does help. Thank you. Okay, let's get to the show. Peter Koskin, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. Thank you. It's about time, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I asked you like 17 years ago and you were like, mm, maybe someday. <laughs> and here we yeah. are. It's usually how it goes. <laughs> yeah, man. So, so for people that, well, actually, first of all, uh, congratulations on um, getting a couple of images uh, awarded in the recent competition. Thank you. I appreciate that, it. That that sh- that shall not be named. Um, I'm sure it'll be brought up in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, cool. So, for people who aren't familiar with you and your excellent photography. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little about who you are. So I'm Peter Koskin. Um, I'm a landscape and nature photographer based in the Sonoran Deserts of Arizona, Uh, originally from Philadelphia. So kind of big transition there. Moved here when I was a teenager. So I've basically been here the majority of my life by now. So and I love it. So right on. What uh, what brought you to Arizona? Uh, my dad actually ended up getting a job in Tucson, so logistically, he thought it would be better to move to Scottsdale, which is about two hours away, uh, so he'd have to drive two hours every day to and from work, and then eventually he found another job closer to home, So, and then we just kind of stuck it here. Nice. Right on. And uh, how long have you been making photographs? So I got my first camera, I believe 2007. I just got out of high school, and I took a a photography class in community college and it was all digital and I was like oh, I'll just pick up a camera and one of my brother's friends was selling like a point and shoot and I thought it was like the fanciest camera ever it was like 300 bucks so I got that and you know I had like a 28 time zoom and I was like oh I can shoot everything with this so I had that for a while and then eventually I, I moved to a, a Canon Rebel XT so very basic DSLR and the rest as they say is history yeah right on and I, th- I feel like you've been photographing roughly about the same amount of time as I have. I think I, I think your website says it started in like 2012. Does that sound about right? So that's when I really got like super serious about landscape photography. Um, before that, I yeah. used to just shoot mostly uh, wildlife and bird photography. So I kind of I took oh, okay. a trip out to the Sierras and that was kind of like the whole game changer for me. Yeah, man, th- th- I don't know how many people I've talked to who are like, I went to the Sierras and... <laughs> The rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, kind of the common theme with landscape photographers, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, I've never been there, so but I I was close. Uh, Couple, you gotta go. I mean, it it really is. It's amazing place. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, cool, man. Well, let's let's dig deep into your your 
photography journey. I know at one point uh, you made the leap to become a full-time photographer, um, but you've since gone back to working full-time, not as a photographer. So tell us about that roller coaster and, and what you learned about yourself in the process. So in the end of 2017, I kind of had this goal. Christmas Eve, I was going to quit my job and uh, try to do photography full-time. And I was really pumped and excited, but I think that's kind of what, uh, what hurt me the most was just getting that mindset like, oh, I'm going to be free and all this stuff. And it didn't quite work out like that. Uh, the first year was okay. Um, definitely made some mistakes. And I think that's really kind of what ended up shifting me to having to work again. But also uh, a lot of the stuff with the past couple years, um, you know, the pandemic, all that stuff, I had to find a way to make a living still. And without being able to do workshops and stuff uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I didn't want to be around people. Uh, so I just kind of took a break from that for a while. I actually haven't even done one since the start of the pandemic. Um, and that was kind of like the, the killer for me because that was one of the big things that I was going to focus on the most. But uh, yeah, I, I made I some so. I made some mistakes for sure. Um, you know, not necessarily following my, my gut and, you know, choosing certain projects over another that I thought would have been, you know, more beneficial to me going forward that ended up just being like a one and done type of thing. So not a, not a good experience yeah. in that regard. <laughs> what were you, what were you doing for work before you decided to take the leap? So I used to work at Toys R Us. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just kind of and a stock boy. Like, was that about this? Was that the, about the time they went, they went bankrupt? <laughs> Yeah. So at the end of 2017, I quit. And then I think three months later, they officially shut down or it's like three or four months later, they officially shut down. So I missed out on a gotcha. little bit of a severance package, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a bummer. It wasn't going to be a whole lot. But... Oh, and then what are you what are you doing now? So now I actually work with uh, my best friend. He does floor removal. Um, so it's like a demo, you know, ripping out floors, really physical labor and, yeah. uh, it's definitely tiring, but, uh, yeah, right. I actually, yeah. yeah, I think it was like April or sometime in early 2019, he, he texted me saying, Hey, uh, you want to work? Uh, he had this big job and there was only two of, two of them working and it was like this huge house they were ripping out and he's like, yeah, we need an extra hand. So I was like, yeah, I guess so. You know, extra money don't hurt nobody. So I started working with him and then like a week goes by and, you know, I worked that whole week with him and he's like, hey, you want to work more? I'm like, I mean, I guess so. <laughs> so I just, I've been working with him ever since. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, well, we'll get more into, uh, into that dynamic in a little bit. I wanted to go back and ask you about some of the mistakes that you made, if you were open to talking about that, because one of the things I think that's really great about this podcast is that. Um, we can talk about the mistakes we've made and hopefully other people can learn from our mistakes and not repeat them. So yeah. uh, what were some of the mistakes you made after jumping in? So I think the big one for me was uh, really kind of putting my eggs in one basket when it came to a big project. Uh, I had one particular project I was working on. And I mean, it would have been kind of one of those game changers that really would have helped me catapult my full-time photography career. But, uh, you know, I was focused so much on that. I ignored almost everything else. And then that whole thing just fell apart and nothing came oh, out of man. it. So that was really like the, the nail in the coffin for that. Because, I mean, 
you know, I was banking on that kind of job, which was, that was my mistake was banking on it. And of course, with my luck, nothing ever goes the way I want it to. <laughs> but again, you know, putting my all my eggs in one basket, you know, I was I should have been focusing on some other aspects, you know, getting the workshop stuff taken care of, set up and, uh, um, you know, more networking. I mean, I spent three months sending emails after emails after emails. I must have sent like a thousand emails to um, art consultants across the country and magazines, publications, all those types of things. And I think I got maybe five total responses. Oh my so, gosh. And only like out of those five, I think I work with two of them kind of on a relatively consistent basis. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, whew, what a grind. So the project you're talking about, is it, was it like a, a commercial project or yeah. was it a personal project, a book project? Like what, tell us what kind of, it was, was a that? it was a commercial project. It would have been uh, a really big display, like hotel size. <laughs> hmm. Gotcha. So would have been a good payday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess lesson learned maybe for you was make sure that there's like a contractual arrangement, or I don't I don't know exactly how it went south for you, but yeah, it was just kind of weird because there was all this kind of hype around it, and you know the the client was super interested in working with me, and you know we had we've been back and forth emails and calls for weeks and weeks, and then it was like I just got ghosted. There was just nothing. You know, I even reached out to them, you know, wondering, hey, what's going on with this project? And all of a sudden, I just never heard anything back. So I was like, okie dokie. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I've had a few of those over the years. Like, I had an REI reach, had REI reach out to me at one point, and they wanted to um, put one of my photos. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to an REI before, but like, when you oh, of check out at the register, when you check out at the register, they have like a giant photograph behind the registers mm -hmm. um and they were building a new store and they wanted to use one of my photographs for that and then COVID happened and they like put pa hit pause on the building project and then like you know a year later they reached back out to me and they're like well we're gonna do this like i don't know like special point of distribution type store it's like a smaller store we still want to use your photo Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay. And then I sent them like what my pricing was going to be. And then it was just like silence. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've had that happen way too many times. Or they try to really lowball you and you're like, mm, do I really need the money that bad? Maybe, but I really don't want right. to, you know, settle for that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a tough, uh, that's a tough world to be in. Like, I don't even... I don't know about you, but like, I don't even count on any of that income. Like if it happens, it happens. Cool. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I count it all um, at the end of the year when I get my 1099s from whoever I've done work with. Right. <laughs> right on. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, your, I guess, I don't want to say experiment, but your, you know, your deep dive into becoming a full-timer. What were some of the main challenges around being full-time uh, that you wished you knew before jumping in? Uh, I think mostly it was just time management, really, because, you know, obviously when you're doing workshops, you have to plan those things way in advance, you know, to get permits, licenses, all that kind of stuff, make sure logistics are taken care of. Um, I kind of just ignored that. And that was another big mistake I had. Ironically, in the end of 2019, I think it was 20, end of 2018, 
uh, you know, I took my woofer class and I was going to, you know, getting really serious about doing the workshop thing again. And, and, you know, again, I had just missed the deadline for a lot of the permits for the, the places I wanted to lead workshops. And, you know, you have to do them months and months in advance, depending on where you are. And there's some cases where you can get them, you know, kind of short notice, but they're much harder to do. Um, but that kind of killed me. And then basically after 2018, a lot of things just started going downhill, not just with photography, but with everything for me. Um, so in 2019, you know, I was obviously working with my buddy and, you know, like I said, it's very physical labor. I ended up hurting my back in like June and I was not able to work like at all for the whole summer. So I was pretty much out of work for the, for a whole summer. My backyard was on fire and my girlfriend, uh, she's also a photographer. She was in Seattle for the summer visiting her parents. So I was all by myself, <laughs> surrounded by fire and being alone and being poor. <laughs> so <laughs> and then COVID happened. So not a, not a great time. Not a great time. No, but uh, ironically, yeah. um, I gained up a lot of my inspiration back around that time because, you know, I had so little to really do that, you know, I'd go and process stuff and, you know, just kind of mess around and, and play with files and, you know, look at maps and plane trips and stuff. But most of those things never came to, to be. So. Mm. so do you have any aspirations to uh, to give it a go again or are you cautiously optimistic kind of what's your position on that now i think the end goal is still to be able to do it full time um i think maybe when i decided to jump in it just wasn't the right time for me um now that i kind of learned a little bit um the, the thing that i still have to focus on is the time management especially now that i'm working full time and you know where it's been busy as i'll get out surprisingly the last few years has been slammed with work but uh i think once i kind of get a chance to settle down. I can really plan these things. I'll have, you know, the knowledge to do so and, you know, know when to, to get these permits for workshops, all that stuff. Um, you know, continue networking, a lot of publications and stuff, uh, galleries. I think one of my big goals is to eventually open a gallery, which I know is kind of far-fetched, but I think for me, that's kind of my ultimate goal is to open a, a physical gallery. Yeah, I think it would be fun if I had like... I don't know, conservatively, let's say if I had like 40 grand that just fell into my lap, it might be fun to try. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need a, a lot of upfront costs and capital. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, where I live, I've seen three galleries come and go in the five years I've lived here. So it's yeah. um, not easy. <laughs> it, it's funny because uh, where I live, the community I live in, you know, it's, it's a lot of retirees, but uh, you know, I, I share my photos with the, you know, they have a community Facebook group and, you know, people from the community can post whatever. And, you know, I'll put, I pretty much only post my pictures. And a lot of people say, you know, where can I come see your photographs? You know, they want to see them in person. And I'm like, well, I can bring some of my personal prints and, you know, samples and, you know, show you and tell you about them. But a lot of times it, they want a specific image they want to see. And it's one that I don't have, you know, hanging in my home. So, Everyone always asks, yeah, where's your it's... gallery? <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, it's um it's in my bedroom. It's yeah. it's cool. You can come check it out. <laughs> it's on the interwebs. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know it's hard. I mean, I've had people ask me that same question a few times in the last couple of years. It's like, 
oh, can we come check out your work in your gallery? I'm like, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, though, um, you know, as many of the mistakes that I made to go full time, the one area that I've still been able to do quite well and okay is the, the whole print sales and image licensing. And that's kind of been like my my bread and butter in terms of my whole photography business now. So yeah. I think a few more things that I can add to that and, you know, maybe it, it's time to jump back in again. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I joke with my wife all the time. I'm like, oh, if I if I just if it was like this every week, I could quit my job. And she's like, yeah, but it's not. And you're like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the problem with, you know, having a, a, you know, Monday through Friday job, or in some cases, you know, we work all the way through Saturday. It's like all the good weather to get out and photograph happens like during the week. So it's like, right. okay, it's, it's, <laughs> it's clear blue and sunny on the weekends when I have time to get out. But when I don't have, you know, don't have time, the skies are going nuts. It's kind of like that whole comp stomps meme that, you know, the, the grocery store always has the best sunset. <laughs> yep, exactly. Story of no, my that's life. That's pretty much how it works here too. well so kind of along those same lines i was curious kind of the flip side of that what are some of the benefits of not being a full-time photographer i think the big thing is not putting like all your effort into the one thing that you really are passionate about um a lot of people i know when they start doing something they love as a business they kind of fall out of love with it for a little bit or sometimes altogether. I think that was the big thing for me. You know, there's that there's a balance there almost where you don't have to really focus too much on, you know, making photographs that have to to sell to make a living. Um, You know, that's taken care of by doing something else. And you can enjoy that aspect of something you're passionate about and not have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've heard other people talk about that. I I am not totally sure how it would affect me, you know, like I've thought about it and I'm not sure that it would really change the way I approach making the photographs, but it certainly would force me to spend more time and effort on the marketing side of things. Yeah, I don't I don't think it it changed how I took photographs per se. Um, It's just more of like, okay, well, if I make this photograph that I love, and it doesn't sell, okay, then I'm not going to be able to afford, you know, rent or my car payment or these bills that are due. So having that actual job that's not photography related kind of eases off of that a little bit. So I'm still like passionate about photography, and I, I can still be in love with it, which I don't think I'd ever fall out of love with it and not be passionate about it, because it's the one thing that I, I feel like I'm actually good at. So I mean, there's there's benefits, but there's also kind of the negatives of that, too, because you always want to be out shooting. Like when you're if you're full time, the mindset is you're always out shooting. Right. But that's not the case. <laughs> no. And then and then when you have not, a regular not job, even close. you want to be out shooting all the time, but you can't. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true. Although for me, I I don't know, like I'm usually pretty happy if I can get out, um, you know, maybe once once a month or, you know, once every other month kind of a thing. I'm not, I don't know. I don't feel that urge to get out 24, seven, 365, like I did 10 years ago, but I'm not sure why that is. Yeah. I, I kind of see that. I mean, this last month, you know, the whole month of January, I made one photograph that I liked and you, you know, last year or the year before that, I'd be like, okay, I didn't make anything this month. Like, why, why am I still doing this if I only have one photograph that I like? But 
you know, like Ansel Adams said, or whoever it was, you know, 12 photographs a year, it's all you need. Right. Of course, that was in the film era. But yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, but no, I think it's good. I mean, I, it's so funny. I don't know why we put these um, artificial numbers in our mind in terms of like, what does it mean to be productive or whatever? Because for me, it's like, like, I'm still editing my photos that I made in Death Valley last month. And, you know, I think there's maybe like four or five or so that are like really good and like probably 10 to 15 that are okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. You know, it's like, it's fine. <laughs> you know, like. So that know. was kind of, that was kind of the thing in the past, you know, I'd always try to shoot as much as I can and, you know, make as many images that I liked as possible. And over the last couple of years, I've noticed that that number has significantly dropped. And now I really kind of only try to have maybe like 20 images a year that I'm like really happy with. And it's not necessarily I want a specific number. It's just I feel like that to me says I was productive enough to get out. And I I got out when I should have gone out. You know, you can go out 10 times in a row and to the same place and get one shot that you want out of those 10 times. And all of a sudden, those nine other times are just, you know, some people say they're wasted days, but uh, not me. There's always some there's always value into those days when you don't make a photograph, um, just being out there and, you know, appreciating where you are. Um, You know, some people aren't always fortunate. You know, they're going on a trip or something to like Iceland and you have a week. And if it rains the whole time and your whole goal is to shoot the northern lights, you're probably going to come back pretty miserable because you didn't get to photograph what you wanted. But the experience has become more valuable to me over the years rather than making just a a photograph that, you know, maybe is going to do well on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, sells well. Yeah, me too, man. Let's let's talk about your newfound appreciation of place and, and moments in time. I'm curious what's driven you to to focus more on that particular approach. So a lot of that has to do with a lot of the landscape around where I live burning down over the last three years or so. Um, like I said, 2019, we had one of the biggest fires in the superstition. I think it was um, for sure the biggest fire they've ever had. It was like 125,000 acres or something. And it was a lot of it was in the wilderness area. And there's a lot of really beautiful places in that that are no longer going to be as spectacular because they're charred. And, you know, it's it's not like a forest fire where, where trees can grow back really quickly. You know, saguaros, once they're burned, they're burned. They're not going to really grow back unless they're seedlings. And even then, they're not going to come back in my lifetime because they take hundreds of years to get, you know, 30, 40 feet tall. But uh, so that was the big straw in, in 2019. And then 2020, we saw another number of really bad fires here. Um, another one in the superstitions. And then which that one kind of I couldn't be too mad about because it was lightning caused. All the other ones were pretty much human caused. And that's really what kind of made me want to appreciate it because all it takes is one person to destroy something. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of careless people out there and out here, it's really like the wild west, you know, people will, they don't care about the rules of being outside. You know, if it says no target shooting, they'll still target shoot. Um, you know, if a road's closed off, they'll still go out there and, and drive those roads just because they feel like they can. Um, but once I saw actually actual places that I've photographed over the years that have really fallen in love with 
and I watched them literally burn right before my eyes. I was like, well, I'm never going to be able to see these in the way that I've seen them before. So having pictures of them before makes me appreciate them that much more. And that was the big thing is just yeah. the fires. Yeah. How has um, that realization shifted uh, the way that you make photographs today? Um, I don't travel away from my general area as much as I used to. You know, I'd always want to try to get to, you know, Montana or travel, you know, to California or something. Now, a lot of my shooting is, is local. And it's because I feel like within a few years, a lot of the stuff that's left isn't going to be there much longer. And, you know, I have a lot of places around here that are really special to me. And if those ever go, then it's kind of like, you know, what am I still doing here if I don't have them to go to? And, you know, one of my favorite places, it's literally right behind my house and it's this peak. It looks like a crown and there's this this hill and it's kind of like this pedestal and you're looking up at this peak. But on the other side, you just see this vast expanse of desert and it's just. Sometimes I'll go out there and just sit there without taking a photograph, even though I know like hundreds of people now go to shoot this peak because they saw it on Instagram or something now. And maybe it was my picture. It's probably somebody else's. I know Max Rive has been out there and with his social media presence, you know, that kind of starts making more people want to visit these places. And I was recently out there actually, and I could see how far over the years that there's now new trails, certain areas where people have um, set up their tripods. They're now like almost these barren s- stretches of dirt instead of, you know, whether it's usually flowers or something or grasses, it's just barren dirt. And it's just people constantly going up and down and, you know, trampling on everything and just getting that photo for the gram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny, man. I saw a, um, I think it was, yeah, this morning there was a post on Facebook from Ryan Dyer about that particular, conundrum about um how i don't know like lack of a better word we're all kind of hypocrites for like not wanting other people to make photographs while like telling people not to geotag and you know like it's it's a complicated dilemma that we we all face because it's like it's not like you're gonna just stop sharing your photographs but at the same time how do you prevent other people from like if you, let's say you won International Landscape Photographer of the Year with that photo, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone would go to try to take that photograph next year. Like you guarantee, you could guarantee it because that's, oh, yeah. which is a whole other conversation of like, why can't people make their own photographs? Like why do they have to copy everyone all the time? Like that's a whole other topic, but maybe we can dive into that. But to me, that um, that is just sad to see that behavior. Like a photograph or a place gets popular because of a competition and then everyone goes to that spot, you know, and then they completely destroy it. <laughs> yeah. And you see it all the time. I It's actually funny because uh, I made it when I went to the Columbia River Gorge in 2015, I made my favorite image I've ever made. It's still my favorite image. And it's this mossy tree framing a waterfall. And it's in a place that's very popular among landscape photographers, but they go to shoot a different scene made famous by people like Mark Adamus and Ryan Dyer. Well, obviously that scene is not really as photogenic as it used to be. So when I was down there, I was just like, okay, I'm not really inspired to really shoot this like this. I'm down here. I'm looking at this scene. It's beautiful, but it doesn't mean anything to me because it's it's nothing that I haven't seen before. And I had just crossed over the creek and I saw that tree and I just I was like, I've never seen any photo of this tree. And it's literally 10 feet away from where everyone else is shooting. 
And I remember uh, a few years ago, Kane, your, our buddy Kane, he went out there and, you know, he went down there and he found the tree and he's like, man, you are really lucky because all that moss on there is is gone, like on that tree, like on the base of the tree. He said all the moss was gone, like people were sitting on it or something. I was like, yeah, I mean, who knows what happened there. But uh, and then they had the Eagle Creek fire, which I don't know if that area got burned or not. I mean, it was kind of in a deep canyon, right. but. I mean, it's just one of those things like, okay, maybe I have a really unique shot that really nobody else is going to have, maybe like two other people. So, right. Yeah. And it's like every time, every time I post a photo that's maybe a little different, you know, um, maybe it's a composition that's people I've never seen before or whatever. First thing people ask is like, where is this? It's like, it's out there somewhere. Go figure it <laughs> out. You know, like, I don't, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you because. As soon as I tell you, you're going to go there and then everyone else is going to go there. And then eventually someone who's a better photographer than me is going to go there and they're <laughs> going to win a huge award with it. And then that place is going to be completely destroyed. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can totally see that. And I, you know, I don't really share locations. I mean, I'll put a general area, but I'm not going to say like this specific, you know, location in this canyon three miles in and you turn left and there's this canyon and it's there's up at the top of this canyon. There's a peak, go up 100 yards and then there it is. There's your, your shot. But uh, I actually had um, so in 2015, again, I had won the Arizona Highways contest and it was a picture of the Kofa Mountains, which at that time, the Kofas were, you know, they're already kind of starting to get known because of people like Mark Adamus and, and Ted Gore and the whole 500 PX days, you know, That's everyone the, saw uh, the, the Troy. The cactus and the, yep. and the, I think Miles Morgan won a bunch of awards with, I think it called like airlines or something because the clouds were all streaking. Right. That shot. And uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. that same area. And uh, so I had won that contest and then I, I think it was. 2018 in the outdoor for 2018 or 2019 the outdoor photographer contest the american landscape uh somebody and they're a friend of mine on in, on facebook and stuff but uh i was kind of humbled actually because they won with the same composition and then i looked at the conditions I'm like man i wish i had those conditions <laughs> yeah so i was like you know you at some point you kind of feel humbled in a way because you're like somebody was inspired by the that composition that maybe you made or, you know, maybe they just stumbled upon it too. I mean, I know I've had that happen where I literally stumbled on a composition and then a week later I see it on Instagram or something like, Oh, I guess I wasn't the first to shoot this. So. Right. Yeah. It's um man, it's a hard one because even as strongly as I believe feel about this stuff too, like I struggle with it because I'll give you an example. I have a photograph that I took in 2017. That's, I don't know. It's like, it's a super unique panoramic panoramic view. I use the telephoto. Um, and I'd never, ever, ever seen a photograph from this spot in my life before. And of course, because I rely a lot on print sales and in order to get print sales for me, like I do a lot of search engine optimization. So I include a lot of the keywords and mm -hmm. you know, terminology and stuff in my photo description, which been pointed out to me many times is another way of just helping someone else figure out where that photo was taken right mm -hmm. and that to some degree is a little bit unavoidable unless you just don't include that information but last fall i got an email from somebody and he was like hey i figured out where you took that photo and i went up there and there were two other photographers up there 
who had your photograph on their phone and they were trying to figure out exactly where to stand where you took that photo. And, you know, of course, part of me was like, that's pretty cool, I guess. But then the other part of me was like, oh, that sucks. How do I fix this? And it's, <laughs> you can't like the cat's out of the bag, right? Like it's, and it's not an easy spot to get to. That was the other thing. Um, yeah. There's so a, like, I just don't, I don't know the answer, man. Yeah. It's kind of a double-edged sword because it's like, you know, you don't, you don't really want to deprive somebody who maybe really wants to see this place and experience it and just have that photograph. But at the same time, if, if it's somebody that, you know, like, okay, they're only going to share it on Instagram because they have like a million followers. It's like, okay, maybe I don't want that person to have that information because they're influencing more people to visit a place that's maybe really fragile and they can't handle that kind of traffic. And that's kind of the, the whole thing that happened with the area behind my house. You know, it's my favorite peak. It's the reason why I live where I do. But you can literally go to all of the compositions that I've ever photographed. And I mean, these were ones that I photographed, you know, years and years ago when you would never see anybody out there. You would see a mountain lion out there. But now, every time I've been out there the last three, four years, there's always been at least one or two other photographers. And then they always point out, oh, there, there's a good comp there. And like, I know. It's like, yeah, I shot that. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, that's not it's 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 not to be like, you know, bragging like I this is the reason why it's popular. It's just like there's not a whole lot of variation in what you can do there. So when I go out there and I try to find a new composition, you're still going to pretty much have the same background because it's this beautiful peak. And you're probably going to have cactus in the foreground or in the spring, you're going to have wildflowers or something. And I know people like Mark Adamus, he's been out there a number of times. Um, you know, some, you know, like I said, Max Rive, he's been out there. So really people who are influential to landscape photographers have already, you know, made these images that are, are driving these people here. So, yeah, you know, I, well, I don't know. I don't know if we're there's both, a, a, we're both a fix to it. But. Sort of in that camp. <laughs> yeah or just not as big as they are but yeah it's um i think the i think the where the for me where the i have where i have real problems is when you start seeing workshops show up at these spots that are you know really small and can't handle a lot of people and like there's not really a established trail to get there you know there's a really famous shot from Jack Brower, which I'm sure you've seen um, over by um, Owl Creek Pass. Oh yeah, and, I, I know, you know which one you're really talking no, about. It's a panorama, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Like he shot it in like the best conditions ever. And he was the first person to shoot that scene, I think. Um, and then somebody like a couple of years later, like had an article about it in Outdoor Photographer Magazine. And then like everyone and their mom the year after that, started going to that exact spot and then people started showing up with workshops and then I was trying to call people out. Like you probably shouldn't, I mean, it's literally a cliff the mm -hmm. size of like a desk. Like it's, you can't, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's not room for a workshop there. And then of course I get told like, well, it's the people know about it. It's no big deal. It's like, you're missing the point, man. Like but pretty soon that spot is going to be completely ruined. That's why I kind of, you know, out here when I was doing, you know, private workshops, I would be really careful to take people to certain areas, even though it would just be one other person. You know, I'd never take a group out to these places because they're, you know, they're, they're wild places and you still got to hike to them. But, um, you know, after seeing the kind of foot traffic that goes through some of these areas, once they get really populated, 
it's just like I don't want to be adding to that so much. And I know there's places yeah. that are already kind of disturbed that can handle that kind of foot traffic, and they're just as spectacular. Right. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, just stick to that stuff if you're going to do workshops, you know. And there, you know, there's anyway. there's so many places out here that you know people just see stuff off the side of the road, but you could park on the side of the road, hike in, you know, 500 feet, and you see something totally different. And there's you know well worn path, or you're just hiking on the side of you know the road or something, and you know it's beautiful. You're not really damaging yeah. the landscape. You're not trampling flowers or anything. I mean, unless it's been a really good spring, then you kind of have to be really careful. But <laughs> right. Well, maybe this is a good segue um, to talk about a possible, I guess, fix for this, a solution. Um, let's talk about taking risks and getting out of your comfort zone in landscape photography. What does that mean to you? So I think for me, it's just I, when I used to go out and photograph, I would, you know, kind of say to myself, this is what I want to photograph. I know the conditions are going to be right. I'm going to make this photograph today. And so many times... Obviously, the weather is very unpredictable, and so you can't really guarantee that you're going to make that photograph. So for me now, I'll go out and just kind of see if a photograph comes to me rather than going to search for the photograph. Um, not necessarily, you know, going to a place that I know can yield a good photograph. You know, maybe someplace I've never been, have never explored before. Uh, I mean, there's still tons of stuff here in the superstitions that I have yet to explore. And I've been, you know, going down a random dirt road here and there and just seeing what's out there. And if there's something to photograph, then that's what I'll photograph. And the one photograph I made this year was one of those instances where we had gone out on this road and it's just really rough road. And all of a sudden we, uh, you know, we actually had good weather conditions. There was actually nice clouds. There was actually a double rainbow, but I missed that. But where we ended up was this really beautiful hill full of all these different cacti. And I was just like, okay, this is really, this is really pretty. And this really speaks to the Sonoran desert. You know, this is, this is the Sonoran desert at its finest. And you see this variety of color and all this stuff, but I had never would have photographed that scene if I had stuck to all the traditional places I've, I've gone that I know can yield good photographs. Um, and it's really easy to get stuck in that mindset where you're like, okay, this peak, I know it's 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 majestic. I know it'll do well on you know social media or something if I get these epic sunset light or whatever. But uh, if you find a photograph that you never knew existed, and that's kind of the the image I made in 2015, that green tree, and that's kind of how it all started for me is just exploring the unknown without having any kind of preconceived notion that you're going to make a great photograph. Let it come to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, it doesn't mean just start walking randomly in a direction, but I think it, I mean, you got to put yourself in interesting places at interesting right. times, but not having a preconceived idea of like what exactly you're going to make a photograph of, I think is such a, a crucial aspect of A, not being bored with photography, B, differentiating yourself from everyone else and C, like constantly having fun and, you know, like not tying your experience or how you how much fun you had to an outcome right mm -hmm. yeah and uh one of the things that i learned especially you know years and years ago is i probably missed so many more amazing photographs by being focused on creating photographs of places that i thought would yield these great photos that my portfolio would have been completely different and maybe you know i wouldn't have 
you know, so many of the same subject matter, maybe I'd be shooting something totally different now because I'd be like, okay, I found this and this is what I want to, you know, try to continue photographing. And it might change your style a little bit because you're finding these specific scenes rather than, you know, okay, you're shooting all these grand landscapes with a wide angle lens. I hardly shoot wide angle scenes anymore, period. I mean, it's my least used lens these days. My most used lens is probably my telephoto lens. And that's as someone who's a landscape photographer. So yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it's fun lens. though. I, I don't long know. Lens landscapes are, are amazing. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. It's so much easier to find something unique it would, by doing that style. Although I will say I did have fun on my trip to death Valley one, one evening, I just use my my wide angle. That's all I use the whole evening, kind of as an experiment. Um, mm -hmm. And it was fun, although I'm sure I missed out on something. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I actually, yeah. uh, I think a week or two ago, I did a, a camera club presentation. And a lot of the people there, you know, they obviously, they're landscape photographers. And a lot of them, they only shoot wide angle lenses. So I told them, I'm like, okay, if you ever go up to the Grand Canyon, I challenge you to leave your wide angle lens at home, take your longest telephoto lens and just keep that on there and see what happens. I told him, I guarantee you'll probably make more beautiful photographs than you could even imagine because you're pinpointing specific compositions rather than being overwhelmed with these huge, vast scenes. And, that, you know, the same thing could be said with a wide angle lens, you know, challenge yourself if you don't shoot a lot of wide angle scenes. Go out to a place and only shoot with a wide angle and see what you come back with because you never know. Yeah, no, I think I think const constraint is always a good way to um, force yourself to to try to be creative, and I that's one of the reasons why I personally <clears throat> like to only photograph not only photograph but only I know that I'm not gonna like add a different sky or you know drop in mm -hmm. a different compositional element because I enjoy that constraint of adhering to only what I'm able to find, you know? Right. Yeah. Cause I think it makes you so much more open to finding something that could work. It might not be as like grandeur and epic and crush it on social media, but uh, you know, the fulfillment of that challenge I think is so rewarding. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> one of the last trips I went on, it was a backpacking trip. Well, it was supposed to be a backpacking trip, but we decided to car camp instead and just day hike in this canyon. And uh, it's a really beautiful canyon. In the fall, it's just spectacular. Colors galore. Um, you always have a chance of seeing a mountain lion or a bobcat or uh, they have these animals called Cotimundi. Uh, possible. Oh, yeah. You could see them in there. But <clears throat> there's a, a photo I made and I've been in this canyon a number of times now. But there's always this one spot that I stop and I sit down on this log. I know this log like <clears throat> like it's my friend. I sit on this log and then I just sit there and enjoy my surroundings. And there's these trees and, you know, you had this gentle breeze coming. You know, the, the fall colors weren't spectacular this year, but they were still decent. And they were just really subtle, but it's against this canyon wall. And I made this picture and I, I just moved my camera a little bit, you know, doing those motion blur type scenes. And it was probably my favorite image I've ever made in that canyon. And it was just these blurry trees in this spot that I, I've been to so many times that I've always sat down. That's where I eat my snack. That's where I get my drink of water. And I was just like, this, this, this photo speaks to me. And there's probably more spectacular photos that could be made within 10 feet of these trees. But that was the photo that spoke to me. And that's kind of what I, I try to do now is 
is just kind of sit and wait. You know, I used to rush compositions and, you know, chasing conditions, but I'd get skunked so many times or just not coming home with anything. You know, now if I have a blazing sunset, I could care less if I come home with zero photographs of that. But if I'm out there and I'm still experiencing it, that's all that matters to me now. Yeah. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but for for you and I, like that is to some degree kind of a luxury because our income doesn't depend on making photographs of those moments. Although that's also a personal choice, right? Like I don't want to have to depend on that particular, you know, commoditization of experience. I don't want to depend on that for my income, at least not right now. So I know we talked about that earlier. That's kind of, well, yeah, kind of going back to that. That's kind of my mindset too, is, um, you know, a lot of these photographs that I, I make now, I might have not made those if I was only focused on photography full time, because my mindset would have been something different. Like, okay, I need to find something that I think will appeal to other people to buy this picture rather than making photographs for myself and actually enjoying them instead of having, you know, a handful of mediocre shots. I at least have one that I'm, I'm proud of that means something to me. Absolutely. Well, awesome, man. Well, speaking of that, one of my, uh, favorite topics to discuss is sales of photographs. Um, What's your approach to making images as it relates to sales of prints? So I remember hearing this a long time ago, sell the icons. And I was just like, "Mm, I want to be a little different. You know, I I don't want to always go to the same place and shoot everything that everyone else has shot. Um, But what actually worked for me where I live is people really appreciate the local stuff. And for people that have never been to the Superstition Mountains or anything like that, it it doesn't feel like someplace like Canyonlands, like Mesa Arch or something. You know, it's it, maybe you've seen one image of Superstition Mountain itself, and it's just this iconic, you know, mountain. And a lot of times you'll see it with a foreground of wildflowers or cactus. But the people that I tend to sell a lot of prints to are local people. And that's what they appreciate is the local stuff that I, I create. And part of that too is actually connecting with the people in my neighborhood uh, <clears throat> that live here because a lot of them, like I said, you know, they're retired, but they're not the kind of people that are going out to explore. You know, they're not hikers, they're not backpackers. They just live here because it's it's a beautiful place and it's relatively quiet. So when I show them these photographs of these places that are literally right behind their house, you're like, these are spectacular. I could, I wish I could have this on my wall. And the other problem now is they're building up so much over here that a lot of people who used to have views don't have that view anymore. So they want a picture to kind of remember that they once had a view. So it, it kind of works out a little bit for me. I know it's a really niche market, but I mean, I still sell, you know, prints of other places, you know, through my website and stuff. But I'll, most of my, my print sales are coming from local people here who want to see the local scenery because they don't have that view anymore or they can't get out to see it because, you know, mobility issues or something. I think that's really good advice. Uh, what's your um, what's your mechanism or mechanisms for reaching that local audience? So we have, like I said, the Facebook group. Uh, they have a, a number of Facebook groups here. Um, the big one has like maybe 5,000 people or something. Uh, you know, our, the town I live in, I think there's maybe like 10,000 people tops. 
uh, that's going to grow significantly over the next 20 years because they're building like 40,000 something houses in the area. Um, but, you know, when I share my pictures with these people in the group, you know, they always comment saying like, oh, where is this? And, you know, I, I mentioned like to the local people because they're not photographers. I say, you know, this is out here in the superstitions. It's down this road. Um, most of you can probably see this mountain from your backyard, but you don't see it from the same perspective. Um, there's that peak that's really special to me is probably my best seller locally because everyone here They've never seen that perspective before, but they know the mountain is right there. And, you know, it's not a long hike to get up there. But the, like I said, the people aren't going to make the effort to make their way up there because it's, you know, it's uphill a little bit. And you got to bushwhack a little bit and go through cactus. But they see this picture and they just really enjoy the different perspective and they appreciate the artistry behind it. You know, it's not just somebody who, who shot it from their backyard. And they see the same thing. It's different for everyone here. And ironically, the side of this mountain has one of the most popular trails going into it. There's a little cave on the side. And that's part of the other problem here in the whole, uh, you know, trampling the, the landscape or whatever. Um, a lot of people miss the trail to that spot and then they end up in the, the peak and then they figure out they have to bushwhack up and they go up the hills and all this stuff. And that's how they trample all this stuff. But uh, yeah, a lot of the local stuff here is mostly through the group chats and stuff. And, you know, a lot of people say, hey, um, I'm interested in this. Do you have a website or where can I come see it? Um, so I message them and I do like home consultations. I, I kind of avoided that, you know, with COVID a little bit. Um, but now I, you know, I started doing it back up again. And from what I gathered is the people that I go visit, almost every single one of them will purchase a print. And they appreciate that they're physically dealing with the artists that themselves and that it's not just, you know, buying off a website and it's a mach automated machine or something saying, thank you for your order. It's actually me saying, hey, I want to get you the right print for your home. You know, let me come out. I'll measure the space. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you, oh, you need the biggest print possible. I'm going to tell you what size is appropriate for your space. And pe people really appreciate that. They like the honesty. They like the connection with the local artist. Um, and that's one of the big keys for me here, at least. Now, obviously, that doesn't work quite well if you're only selling online because you can't go you know, cross country and visit every single person. But for, for the local people, I also offer free delivery. And that's another way for people to, to meet the artist. I can tell them more about the image and tell them the story behind it. And they all love it like that. They appreciate that so much. And they're, you know, they always want to buy more. I'm still waiting for a couple people to, to, you know, make up that offer. But, you know, people appreciate that connection with the artist themselves. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, that's, like you said, that can become challenging logistically, but, you know, I think you've, found, it sounds like you've found a, a way to kind of make that work for you. Yeah. And then the other thing, the other thing I do, I know it's mostly print sales, but, uh, you know, I, I do deal with publications and stuff, you know, like Arizona highways, I'll get stuff in there, uh, you know, a lot of calendar stuff. Um, and then I, I work with art consultants too. So I still, you know, I actually... <laughs> This last year, I probably made the most money with photography than I have in all the other years combined. <laughs> it's still working a full-time job. <laughs> Funny how that works. Well, let's let's talk about confidence and external validation. 
I know for a lot of photographers, if something doesn't sell or do where do well in like a competition or on social media, it can be really discouraging. So like, what's your approach and what have you learned over the years uh, about that? So uh, I actually just had this conversation with my girlfriend, Sarah, uh, about photo contests. And I entered my I entered my first photo contest and it was Arizona Highways photo contest. I think it was in 2009, whatever the first year they, they started doing it. And um, I had a picture and it was of a place that at the time, nobody could get out there unless you had permission from the, the owner. And with my luck, my brother was doing some kind of business deal with the owners out there doing something. I don't know what. I don't ask questions. But uh, it was a hot spring. And, you know, there's a lot of stories about the hot spring. You know, JFK had, you know, sat there and soaked in the, the hot springs. But it was at the time a place that nobody really had access to. And I made a photograph of it. And I was like, man nobody has this picture. I'm, this is unique. You know, people have to like it. Like this has to win because nobody's seen it. Of course, you know, I got a little over my head and, and I wasn't even a finalist or anything. And, you know, at first I was like, man, I can't believe they didn't pick this as a finalist. At least, you know, it's unique. So the next year goes by, I feel like I had better images, right? Still no, nothing. I entered like two other contests and nothing. 2011, 2012, and then 2013. 2013, I finally broke ground and I got an honorable mention in the Arizona Highways contest. I was through the moon. I was like, I, this is the best thing ever. You know, like I, I feel like finally my work is worth something. People are noticing like how, how great I am. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I'm the best. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, you know, you get those kind of dopamine highs that really make you feel good. No, I know. Um, I get it. <laughs> it, it. It's different on like Instagram and, and social media, though. But uh, so 2013, I got the honorable mention. And then the next year uh, they did for the same contest, they did like a fan favorite thing and people voted my image in. And I was like, OK, that's cool. Like. That this was a social media one and the people on social media and Facebook, they like my image enough to get it published in the magazine. So I was like, okay, I'm getting somewhere. Then 20, 2015 came and that's when I won the, the grand prize. And when you win the grand prize of any contest, you feel like you're the king of the world. Like there's this, you feel like you're validated. Like you, you accomplish this mountain of achievement. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm cool. I'm the best there is. And, you know, you get you get this confidence boost for sure. But at the same time, I've always tried to keep myself humble. And, you know, a lot of photographers and I know this this is true with a lot of photographers I talk to. They always, you know, they could be great photographers. And the first thing they do when you meet them in person. Yeah, I suck. I'm OK, I guess. I'm not that great. Eh, thanks. I'm, I'm OK, I guess. And that's kind of how I was like I wouldn't say I sucked, but I was just like, you know, thank you. I, you know, I don't feel like I, I belong in this category of photographers. I don't feel like I've I've achieved enough to be up there yet. Uh, but uh, I think 2018, I won the outdoor photographer contest. And that one, so the Arizona Highways and the outdoor photographer contest actually meant something to me because they were images that were unique to me um, that I know nobody else had shot those compositions before. So after 2018, you know, I started entering, you know, I enter a lot of photo contests. I think they're fun. 
And a lot of people that I talk to, they get really discouraged if they don't, you know, make a finalist. And, you know, especially, you know, considering that we just had the International Landscape Photographer of the Year Awards announced, you know, I always think about like, okay, who's going to win this year? I mean, most of the time I want it to be me, but I know realistically it's probably going to be someone else. Um, And that's part of being confident, you know. I think people are not as confident as they should be when it comes to their own work. You know, I enter these contests wanting to win, hoping to win, right? But if I don't win or I don't get anything, like, okay, I'll just move on to the next one. It doesn't necessarily discourage me in the way that other people might get discouraged because the photos I'm entering are photos that I'm still very proud of, no matter what, if they are voted one star out of 10 or, you know, a hundred out of a hundred. Um, I know like, uh, you know, they, they show like the scores and stuff, what the judges give you. I know the natural landscape awards did that too. You could see like what the judges ranked your, your photos and all that. And you look and you see, yeah. and there's always a, a variation, right? Cause the whole thing with judging of contests, it's, it's really personal opinion when it comes down to it. It's not necessarily like, okay, this is the highest quality photograph of the contest. Um, but, and that's not to, you know, discredit anybody who's won a photo contest, by the way, because I don't want people jumping down my throat saying, oh, you, you don't think I deserve to win. That's not at all what I'm saying. But when people, they, uh, they win these contests and then you have another group of people that will post on social media saying, I can't believe this person won, or this is so Photoshopped. Like, I can't believe, like, I'm never going to enter this contest again. And there's other photographers who are, you know, maybe they're just starting out and they, they want to start entering contests. So they enter these main contests and then they don't get anything and they begin to wonder why they're still doing it. And I think, uh, was it last year, two years ago, it was the panel awards. And I remember you messaged me and I posted like, you know, I got in like the top 100 or whatever, top 50 or whatever. I got like a gold or, or a silver. And you were really proud of the panoramic you did. It might have been, uh, it was from Colorado, obviously. You're at the top of a mountain. And it was just it was really probably beautiful. the one I was talking about. It, probably. <laughs> Earlier. Um, but I remember, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you were kind of, you seemed like you might have been a little disappointed because you were really proud of that image. And it didn't like get, you know, a higher score than you were anticipating. But to you, that image is, still means something, right? Like you're still of proud of, yeah, you're still proud of that image. That's the only validation you need as a photographer is if you're proud of your own work, whatever, what anybody else is doing, that's their business. It doesn't matter. You know, you could, we could complain all day long about, you know, this photo shouldn't have won this contest, or I think this person got robbed or I should have won or something like that. Um, You know, there's, there's, there's so many variables, but the thing that I think gets lost the most is the personal validation of the the images that mean something to the photographer that had entered them. Right. Yeah. Let's, I mean, dude, I could talk about how competitions are structured all day long because it's literally all I've thought about for the last year is like how to build a competition and work out all the things that I personally don't like about other competitions. And I think for that one, you're talking about the Epson one from, I think that was, I think you're right, that was like 2019, 2018, something like that. I think the only reason I was upset wasn't because I didn't win or whatever. It was because in their rules that year, it was like a new thing they'd put out that said that they were, they were basically saying that they were, they were 
emphasizing originality and uniqueness, you know, they, mm-hmm. in terms of what they wanted to look for, what they wanted to get and what they were going to award people for, like something different that we haven't seen before. And then the results came out and like the top 50 or whatever, like half of them were like the same composition of Patagonia, you know, like, yeah. And it's like, okay, you guys said that, but then the results came out and that's not what happened. So that's what I was upset about. Yeah. I mean, I could see that. Um, You know, obviously the other thing too, is I noticed with all these big main contests where they have like their top 50 or whatever, they always seem to have a theme. You know, they, there's no like, specific theme that they tell you but when you look at you know the winners list and the the top you know 50 or 100 or whatever you start to see a kind of theme of you know what they were looking for but they won't tell you preference yeah there's a preference and i think a lot of people you know i made comments in jest you know i i don't i don't have any you know grudges or anything against people that win these contests in fact the 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 person that I, or the person that won the International Landscape Photographer of the Year, you know, I was saying, uh, there's three people I think might have a chance. And that was one of the people I thought might have had a chance. And sure enough, they had won. And I thought, it, you know, I thought it was kind of cool because it was a, a person from a place that doesn't really get a whole lot of photographic uh, attention, you know, Turkey. Yep. And um yeah. And to me, that that's kind of even cooler because I'm half Turkish. So oh, cool. So I was like, okay, cool. You know, I can, it's something I can talk to my dad about, and you know, we can, you know, I can talk to him about that. And you know, I always see people like, uh, you know, it's so photoshopped, it's unbelievable, but it's clear as day in the rules. Like, there's no limit to what you can can and can't do. You know, at least with the the Natural Landscape Awards, you had specific rules that you had to follow and you check the raw files to verify like, okay, this, this is a legit photo. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, you know, the people that complain about the other contests, uh, you know, if it's not in the rules, like it's, it's fair game. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no point in complaining about it, I guess. Um, well there, I guess there is cause it feels good cause you get it off your chest, but what I, I mean, we, well, we, like, all wanna, you, we all want to, we all want to complain about that. it. <laughs> You know, what I, what I did is I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to create my own competition that values the types of images that I, that I personally like to make myself. So, yeah. and I got to say, you guys, I don't did, see a, myself, you guys oh, did an excellent job with that. And, you know, I, okay, here goes to that confidence thing. I thought I had a really good shot of winning because I was like, okay, these are, you know, the pictures that I, I entered, I was like, okay, these are, these are good. Maybe it's photo of the year or something. And then, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. they announced the results and I was like, okay, I see, I, I, I see, you know, the winners and stuff. I was like, okay, I, I get it. Like, you know, a lot of friends of mine, super proud of them. Uh, you know, Eric, definitely deserving for sure. All those people deserving of what they have. I've seen some of the best photos I've ever seen in that competition. And they're, they're photos that I probably would never see in like the land, uh, international landscape photo of the year. You know, the, the photo that won photo of the year. At looking at the thumbnail, I literally thought it was a moonrise over a mountain. And then I looked at it on my computer. I was like, this is a rock and ice. I'm like this totally like changed my perspective on, you know, what I'm looking at. And, you know, it was yeah. really nice to see people who have been deserving of that recognition get recognized because if they had all entered, you know, like the Epson panel awards or the international landscape photographer based on the trend that a lot of people see, Maybe they wouldn't do so well, but they have an outlet, 
that is recognized. And I think a lot of people should appreciate that too. Yeah. Yeah. There's room for both for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's, we feel like we, we kind of fit a niche that, you know, wasn't, there was really nowhere for people of that type of style to compete in. And we created that. So <laughs> it, it's yeah. funny because uh, one of the contests from a number of years ago, they used to do the USA landscape photographer of the year. And I think, uh, yeah, I think Alex was the last person that won that and then they stopped it. And I remember, yes. I think I remember they used to require raw files for that one too. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Cause it's the same organize. Well, no, it's a different organizer. It's Charlie Waite. Yeah. Who did that one. But I think what killed that competition was, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was. It was 2016. 20, like the, I think it was the, the year before the last year, maybe, or it was the last year. I can't remember. But the person who won, basically all of the images they submitted were edited by somebody else. <laughs> hmm. I um, see. And they were all taken on like workshops, I think. So it was like, and everyone knew that. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a big kind of, you know, it just became a farce to a lot of the people in the community because it was like that you can't win. And like, how can you win the top award if you're not even the person who edited the photo, you know? So, well, well, um, see, here's, here's the double-edged sword because in the international landscape photographer of the year, one of the rules is you have to edit your own photos, but then a lot of people complain that there's a lot of composites and, you know, overly processed stuff, but you know, they say it clear as day. Like you can process however you want, as long as it's yours. That's all that matters. Yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, read the rules, man. Um, but well, uh, cool. We for, don't have to beat that drum for two hundred hours. But go ahead and finish your thought. I was just gonna say for people that you know always are hesitant to enter a photo contests, and you know if you enter a photo contest, just don't get your hopes up that you're gonna win anything. Just use it as a, kind of like playing the lottery. You know, you can't win if you don't play. But, uh, you know, don't get discouraged if you don't get anything either, because it shouldn't be that that validation shouldn't be the only thing that that uh, dictates how you photograph and what you photograph or how good you are or how bad you are. You know, there's there's all levels of photographers and, you know, we all learn somewhere. And like I said, it took me years and years to finally break through one contest. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I heard you say earlier the reason why you like to enter competitions is because it's fun. But I'd be curious, you know, are there other reasons why you enter competitions? Because it's obviously not solely for the validation, right? You know what I mean? Because you're okay if you don't win. So, I mean, obviously the, the first thing is I want to win whatever prize they're giving. So, you know, if they're offering $5,000, yeah, I would love $5,000, right? For a photograph, like who wouldn't want $5,000? But the other thing that that actually has worked for me with entering photo contest is a lot of times like this International Landscape Photographer of the Year, Epson Panel Awards, a lot of uh, different websites and stuff. And they make these articles and they put the list of photographers and then they put, you know, a hodgepodge of the top 50 or whatever. And almost every single time I've been in any of those articles, I've gotten licensing requests out of that. So I kind of look at it as a, a way to market myself too, because your image is out there, your name is attached to it still, um, especially in those articles. A lot of times they have to put your your name in there. Um, but I know there's a lot of people who are hesitant to enter any contest because of the whole, we can use your image whenever we want without further compensation. 
Um, and that's just part of the gamble to me. But for me, it, well, it, it's it worked out. Term, depends on the terms of service, right? I right. Mean, I think outdoor photographer is the one I pretty much discourage people from doing just because like, A, there's no limit on how many photos you can enter. So like, it's just a cash grab for them. B, you look at their prize list, it's usually not that impressive. And then C, it's, um, yeah, you read the fine print. They literally can use your photograph on the cover of their magazine and not compensate you for that, which I personally think if for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, we see ourselves as a media company, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the main outputs of our competition is our fine art book. So anyone who's in the book is getting a copy of the book for free. Gotcha. Anyone who entered the competition is getting access to buy the book at a severely discounted price. Right. So like we're not just like trying to make a ton of money um, off of other people's photographs. So we, I think it's important to think about what the impetus of the competition is as well mm -hmm. and what their goal is and, and what the benefits of you entering are. I think to your point, um, marketing and license potential licensure requests. I think those are all very valid things. Um, for us, we want one of the main reasons people enter is like you're going to get into a collectible item that is, has a limited print run that is going to be some of the best landscape photography in the world. So. Yeah. Well, it's uh, so when I won in the outdoor photographer contest in 2018, you know, I don't enter all their contests, but I entered that one. And yeah. it was one of those gambles that paid off because I won, obviously. Um, but even though I won, I still got residual income from that because I brokered a licensing deal based off that photograph. I got a set of free filters from uh, BMW uh, to use and then uh, part of their marketing campaign. So I ended up back an outdoor photographer in the BMW ad. And uh, then I actually got into outdoor photographer as a contributor. So it, it kind of, you can kind of spiral it into if you're smart enough to do it and keep, you know, persistent on it, you can spiral it into a really lucrative part of your business, really. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think that's a good way to think about it. But also, I don't know, sometimes it's just nice to kind of see where you where you rate amongst your peers. Well, yeah, that, that's always a nice thing, too. You know, you could see, okay, if you won, that's great. If you got second place, that's, that's cool. Third place, cool. And photo of the year, great. But at the same time, if you're like second place, okay, maybe next year aspire to be first place. You know, have these goals at least to, to continue. And like I said, you don't have to enter every contest. You know, I don't enter every contest anymore. There's like the three or four main ones that I enter, you know, like the Pano Awards, International Landscape Photographer. And now that you have the Natural Landscape Awards, I'm going to be, those are probably the three that I'll be entering, you know, yearly, depending if I have enough quality work that I think can you know, make it through those contests. Totally. Wrapping things up, I'm curious, uh, who would you recommend our listeners learn more about? Who are some photographers that we should um, figure out and learn more from? So one of my favorite photographers, he's actually based in Montana, and he, he does a lot of cool wildlife uh, game uh, trap photos. Uh, his name is Zach Clothier. I think that's his last name. Um, but he has also some really great landscape photography, but he, his wildlife stuff is really spectacular. And for people who are really focused on landscapes, it's, it is a nice change of uh, pace to hear about wildlife photography because it's a different, it's a whole different game of photographing. And he has some really 
cool shots and he probably has some really cool stories because he he has stuff from like uh he photographs a lot of lynx and mountain lions and stuff so a lot of the cats in north america um like grizzly bears obviously in montana he has he he lives up i think kind of close closer to glacier so he has all those really cool animals and those landscapes around him but he's got some really quality work um another person uh suzanne mathia and if I pronounced her name wrong, she's going to slap me when she sees me next, which will be in April. But uh, she, I think it's Mathia. Mathia. I should know this, <laughs> but I'm always never good with I've pronunciation. Had a, I've had some practice in pronouncing her name because she supports the podcast on Patreon. So, Okay, um, so you're I saying she, first will, time she I... will slap me. <laughs> oh, I'm counting on it. <laughs> but yeah, she... Uh, in uh, 2016, I did a Lake Powell houseboat trip with her, and it was really fun. Oh, she's cool. really she's really a good teacher, and she has a lot of good knowledge about uh, the Southwest and photography in general. Um, she actually helped me make one of my favorite images off that trip by letting me use her 14-millimeter lens. And now I would never use a 14-millimeter lens, so thank you, Suzanne. <laughs> and then uh, lastly... Um, I think it would be interesting to hear from Jeff Kitta, who is the photo editor of Arizona Highways. Um, I don't know if you've had many uh, photo editors for a publication on here, if any. Um, and one that kind of focuses on one specific area as well, because with Arizona, you know, there's a lot yeah, of stuff. Be... There's a lot of stuff here to photograph, but I, I feel like maybe he gets kind of inundated with a lot of the same. So it'd be kind of interesting to hear his thoughts on, uh, uh, you know, how to get published and, uh, you know, what he looks for as a photo editor as well. I love that. I love that idea. And there's certainly some really fantastic photographers who are producing work for that magazine, like Joel Hazelton. And um, I know uh, a couple other people too, but yeah, it's, I know Shane, Shane McDermott used to do a lot of work with them as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was yeah, gonna, I was gonna situation. recommend Joel, but uh, I know, I think Jonathan Buford, who was on here, recommended him. And I think someone else did too. Yeah, I think Mike Sanchez maybe recommended yeah. him back yep. in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah, have recommended cool. him too, but he was already on. <laughs> right. Well, so Peter, do you have anything coming up that you'd like our listeners to, to learn about? Um, as far as learning, nothing in the books. It's mostly just kind of one big trip planned, and that's that's it for the year so far. And that's a, a Grand Canyon River trip with Suzanne. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when she posted that, I was like, I want to come. And she's like, you should. I'm like, oh, man, it's too much time commitment for me but yeah it sounds like uh, an amazing trip my girlfriend she signed up for it and then i uh she's like you better do it soon so i put the deposit down and it was like the last spot available but have you done um, it before no this is this will be my first time going down uh to the bottom of the canyon aside from like uh have a oh. by so I'm, I'm really excited i i did the um i did the upper half back in i guess that was 2018 nice it's awesome man it's so fun <laughs> i know i'm so excited but i'm also kind of like am i gonna be prepared for it because it's i think it's like 11 days and uh you know i'm, I'm gonna be a dirtbag for a few weeks for a week or two <laughs> so. yeah man it's 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 really fun if you have any questions about preparing for it let me know because i i like outfitted a whole um 
Pelican case for my camera gear and stuff like that so that it would stay attached to the boat if it flipped. So yeah, yeah there's things to think about. Yeah, I think she's supposed to, she was going to send out a list. Maybe they already did and I just missed the email. But uh, yeah, they were supposed to send out a list of, of things that they recommend bringing. Uh, so my girlfriend, Sarah, and I, we're going we're gonna to figure that out and hopefully not spend too much money on that because it was already a pricey trip. But uh, the most affordable, it's a- the most affordable rafting trip that we've found in the Grand Canyon and it's catered to photographers. So right. That's, that's, that's the thing, thing, man. When I did it, it was self-guided with a bunch of friends, like, mm-hmm. and we just all split the cost of renting the boats and getting the food and all that stuff. But, you know, you're doing all your own dishes and cooking and cleaning and setting up the the toilet and all that fun stuff. And of course, like all the work happens when the best light is happening. Of course. Like, I promise, I promise that I will do dishes, but I got to go make some photos. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the nice thing about uh, having a, a crew and, you know, we can just focus on photography. That was the nice thing about the Lake Powell trip we did. Uh, you know, I was on houseboat, so it was even more luxurious. And we had the crew cook for us every night, make breakfast. So I could Ooh, be out early, go yeah. shoot sunrise, come back, have breakfast and coffee ready for me. Same thing at night, you know, shoot sunset and whatever I'm shooting, come back, have dinner, or drink and, and call it a night and hang out with everyone at, at camp. That That's was the other that fun was, thing about uh, about the the, uh, the Grand Canyon trip is um, you get like a you get like a mesh bag. And you fill it full of beer cans and you put it, you know, attached to the back of the boat. So you've got cold beer like all day long, man. It's yep. the best. <laughs> I know. I think that's the one thing I'm kind of worried about is how much do I really need to bring? <laughs> yeah, I brought too much. I think I had like four six packs extra or something. Yeah, yeah that, that's probably too much. I just need like one for, you know, dinner, or, you know, sitting around a campfire or something. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks, Peter. This has been awesome. And finally, we were able to pull it off. Yeah. And now the next step is doing a photo trip, right? Because I know uh, Kane asked if I wanted to go on that Death Valley trip. And I was hoping to, but work called. So, so we'll, we'll make fig- it work. One of yeah, we'll years. have to figure out something. Maybe you can come down here to the, the Sonoran Desert. I'd love to. I've been wanting to get down there for a long time. So, yeah, maybe we could do that like in February or March or something. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, thanks to Peter for joining me for a great chat on the podcast this week. I really appreciate your photography, your positive attitude, and the way in which you approach the craft. Keep up the great work, Peter. Before we part ways, I wanted to remind listeners about an opportunity that you won't want to pass up. You really should join me at Out of Chicago Live on March 11th through the 13th, 2022. This will be my second Out of Chicago Live as an instructor, and I keep coming back because it's a lot of fun. As far as I know, this is the only event of its kind where you can learn from the largest group of instructors ever assembled, hang out with landscape photographers from all over the world, and be part of the Out of Chicago family. All sessions are virtual and are recorded and available for 12 months after the event, so you don't have to feel pressured to Go to a specific one and miss out on others. You can get access to all of them. Learn more and register at outofchicago.com. I hope to see you there. Again, that's outofchicago.com. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.